I was trying to think about like, how do I create a very vague, but kind of at the same time specific piece that talks to that division of space and what it does to the environment to divide our spaces in these ways. And being a printmaker, my brain immediately went to blend rolls to be able to create an abstracted implication of land because I can put five or six colors on an 18 inch wide roller and make sure that the colors are blending in a way that they imply a horizon line and maybe imply some kind of body of water or the sun setting or other things like that based off of the combination, but leave it in such an abstracted out of focus form that you could think about it as any environment you may have experienced in your life at some point. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 217th episode, I'm excited to be back from hiatus and share this interview with Matthew McLaughlin, who joined me from the D.C. area. We talk all about environment and boundaries and landscapes and how that gets played out and explored in his work, which incorporates a variety of print approaches as well as mixed media works. And we're going to, of course, talk about that in depth in this interview, so be sure and check it out. You can also find out about his work at MatthewTMcLaughlin.com. If you're here in Studio Break for the first time, I do want to encourage you to visit StudioBreak.com. We've got a big archive of artists that have been featured with their work, links to their websites, and a default player so you can listen to the interviews right there on StudioBreak.com. You can also hit that iTunes button and go there and subscribe to the podcast and check it out there. You can find Studio Break on Facebook, so be sure and like our page there. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. So with those announcements out of the way, here's our episode with Matthew McLaughlin. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Matthew McLaughlin. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? Well, I'm glad that you were able to join me this afternoon. I'm super excited to talk about your work. And so obviously, you know, you're currently in, in D.C. Uh, where where are you from? Did you did you grow up on the, the East Coast or the West Coast or Middle America? Who knows? Uh, I grew up outside of D.C. in Greenbelt, Maryland, uh, which is actually where I currently live now. I went out to down to Ringling and Sarasota, Florida for undergrad and then out to uh, Arizona State in Tempe for grad school to get my MFA before I came back home. And so to ask the million dollar question, did you know that you always kind of wanted to do something in the arts or were you like a comic book person or <laughs> I don't know. It's always so interesting to think about where people, you know, get their first inkling to kind of start making art or drawing or whatever. Yeah. I've kind of always been into it. I've, I've drawn a lot since I was a kid. There was always that push by the parents to, continue in the sciences or the mathematics because I was good at that as well. But when I hit middle school, high school, I started taking some animation classes and just really dove into it and was pretty hardcore on the idea of being an animator until I actually took an animation course over a summertime and was not so thrilled with the idea of sitting in front of a computer for eight hours a day in a dark room because there were so many computers, it would overheat otherwise. <laughs> So I switched into illustration initially in college, and then again, kind of got that realization by having a 2D design class with a fine artist that 
Uh, I didn't really want to be told what to draw all the time by an art director or somebody. I wanted to be able to kind of play and create my own stuff. So halfway through freshman year, uh, I decided to switch over to fine arts so I could have a little bit more freedom to explore the ideas in my head and just kind of see what came out. In terms of like a background in animation in like high school, what kind of you know facilities did you have access to? Sound like there's some maybe overheating problems, but are they kind of at all comparable to like the programs that you might use today? Or is that something that... You know, you're not as up up to, uh, you know, just because of where you're at now. It started off in like uh, late elementary school, middle school, doing like stop motion with clay and putting it together in flash and then developing flash animations while in middle school. And then when I was in high school, it mostly was back to painting and drawing until I took a specialty summer course where it was an introduction to using Maya, which is still one of the main animation programs used today. There's probably been a lot of upgrades since I last used it. But I have a lot of friends who are still in the industry uh, from having gone to a Ringling College of Art and Design where that was one of their better majors. And so I still know like what kind of upgrades and what's being used. And Maya is still a major part of it, but I wouldn't be able to touch it nowadays without a lot of training. Sure, sure. Well, and it's interesting to hear you talk about that relative to like the idea of, you know, making your own content instead of working on something you know, that you're kind of being told what to do, or at least kind of like what you're looking for. I, I think they're similar, obviously, in terms of how you're planning and executing things. But I kind of always joke around that with that with my students and that like, you know, you could be working on an Avengers movie and you're just like the window person, you know? Yeah. You just like design all the, you know, telephone poles and <laughs> Avengers 12, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, I had a friend in college who graduated. His specialty was hair. <laughs> and he got a job right out the gate from college working for DreamWorks because he was so good at rendering and animating hair. Interesting. So again, you've kind of moved in a totally different direction. You kind of talked a little bit about that earlier experience with 2D design. Did you wind up kind of taking printmaking soon afterwards and, you know, fall for that? Or were you, you know, kind of still drawing and painting? What was the, the progression there, you think? Well, right off the bat, I wanted to, I jumped right into sculpture. I don't know why, but I had this inkling that I wanted to really build and make stuff with my hands. And I was decent at it, but I just could never really wrap my head around that need for the 360 degree view. Mm -hmm. And so work was good from one angle, but never really worked well from other angles. So I went back to painting, but I had a rough time in painting. It wasn't that I was bad at it. It's just the direction of the department and what I was making just weren't really melding well at the time. Um, and I was making really graphic stuff. I was thinking off of comic books and comic book imagery and Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein. And so one of my friends was taking a silkscreen class and told me that I should come over and talk to the printmaking department people. And it was odd. I, I remember taking uh, intro to printmaking as a required course and really not enjoying it at all. <laughs> and then I actually like sat down with the actual printmakers in the department and they showed me stuff and they talked me through stuff and I started taking the etching and the screen printing class the next semester and just fell in love with it and I think it was just a case of that professor who taught me that first intro class was just not in a good place and wasn't really bringing the A game that semester or something but afterwards once I actually got into the nitty-gritty of the processes and everything else it really clicked with like the way my brain thought about processes and working through work and such. Because, I mean, the big problem I had when it came to painting was I had never had any real tutelage in the technical side of painting. And so I was trying to take classes to learn how to use oils better or how to approach using gouache or things like that. 
And the painting professors at Ringling at the time were more the variety of, all right, come in and make stuff and we'll talk about it. Not really trying to get into the technical. Um, and I needed the technical. I love the technical. So when I got introduced to an actual printmaking class that really got into the nitty gritty, I just got totally sucked into it. Was it kind of all the different kind of printmaking processes or were there particular ones that you were kind of more gravitating towards? Um, Cause you know, there's always those like brooding people working on like mesotints that are just, you know, just rocking that thing back and forth for hours to get that rich, rich black. Yeah. For me, it's always been more of a case of what's the print process that's going to enhance the quality of the image the way I want it to work. Mm-hmm. Less about, oh, I love this process so much, I'm just going to do this process. Part of that is because I never really had like, I mean, it wasn't the optimal facilities for undergrad. Um, and I've had to move around from this space to that space over the years. And I don't have my own equipment. So I've never dived into one so hardcore. But I've dabbled in everything. And I know how woodcut might work better for this idea because of its texture. And that's in my brain competing just because at the same time, even though it might be better in woodcut, screen's going to be faster. So mm-hmm. it's how do I juggle that and which one do I feel like is more important? Like, do I get it out quickly or do I take the time and get the texture and the look that I want for it? And so I dabble in everything. I wouldn't say I'm an expert in any of it, but I'm good at, I'm good at all of it and I can teach them all well. But I know some printmakers who are, like you said, mezzotint artists or lithographers mm-hmm. who are just so addicted and dedicated to that area that they, for the most part, don't touch anything else. And that's great for them. I've just never really had that kind of addiction or, or need to stick with one thing. I've always rather play around and dabble and learn and experiment. Well, and I would imagine that allows you to kind of adapt, you know, whatever printmaking techniques you want for whatever your ideas you're kind of focusing on. Yeah. Which kind of brings up an interesting, you know, thought process. If you go back in time to that, I don't know, like a capstone show or like the, the work that you had kind of left that experience with. Could you kind of describe it at all? Or again, it's always interesting looking at things in hindsight because you're like, oh, this is a big breakthrough. And sometimes it's spot on and it kind of goes back around to something that you're making now. And then sometimes it's like, yeah, I was addicted to like, you know, figurative painting and then, you know, totally jumped into something else, you know? Well, for me, it's always like I've always been making work related to the environment and the land. I mean, my my last major series in undergrad was kind of abstracting landscape photographs that I had taken by using Photoshop to posterize them and then messing with those layers in reproduction through lithography. Mm-hmm. And so it was just kind of just pushing and pulling and trying and playing and with like, how can I take this but abstract it? And that's the big thing that I've always for many years struggled with until recently where I started to these new bodies of work that I've been working on is like, I love abstraction. I am totally uncomfortable making work that is completely abstract, but I am very comfortable making work that is realistic or has some relationship to recognizable things, but I never feel like that's enough. And I think that now looking back, that last series of five or six prints that I did in my undergrad years was kind of that like, okay, this is the direction I should go. And I strayed away from it in grad school and came back to it and have gone back and forth over the years. But it's like, now that I understand that nature of how I try to approach stuff, it's like that final series in undergrad was kind of like the first time I kind of pulled that off. And yeah, it's just funny how that works out. Well, and it's interesting to think about, 
you know, when I started school, like all the digital editing tools are just like another tool for a printmaker to be able to, you know, kind of further that, you know, in, in a variety of different processes and ways. So I think that's something that's really kind of interesting. And, you know, even just thinking about the way that you're manipulating photos and that obviously that comes up in some other bodies of work, I'm assuming. I guess in thinking about like a timeline, did you wind up going straight away to graduate school or did you take time off and, you know, work at Lowe's or? <laughs> I took a year off. I actually walked out of undergrad with one of my undergrad professors telling me that they felt like my critical writing in reviewing a few different gallery shows that had happened that year in Sarasota was really strong and that I should consider going in that direction. And so I took a year to kind of like look into art history, MA programs and PhD programs, while at the same time, like making stuff as I could and trying to figure things out. And it hit about four months after graduation, and I was itching for a press. I realized I had an addiction at that point because it just been so long since I'd actually worked with ink and rollers and a press. So I spent about three months literally emailing every print shop I knew of in the country saying, I'm just looking to get more experience and get more work. So if you're willing to have me come out, I'll do it for free just to get it on my resume. Mm -hmm. Um, and I got zero responses except for from a press called Durham Press, which is located in Durham, Pennsylvania, outside Allentown. Um, and they brought me up for one weekend uh, where I worked from eight in the morning until eight o'clock at night, inking woodcut blocks for Polly Apfelbaum. So we, we showed up at eight, uh, set up about 60 rollers with 60 different colors. And these were four inch brayers, not very big ones. Polly, the artist, would show up at nine and she had this just cart of these shaped wood blocks or stamps, basically, that they would cut out on just a jigsaw for her. And they ranged anywhere from three inches to three feet in size. And she would walk around and she'd look at a color and she'd walk over to the cart and she'd grab a block and she'd place it at that color. And uh, myself, along with two other assistants that weekend, our job was to go over and ink them up. And once they were fully inked up to the level that they needed to be, we put them on another cart where they were rolled into the press room and she placed them on the paper color side up. And then the master printer and his assistant flipped them over and placed them color side down. And then at five o'clock she left and we spent three hours finishing up and cleaning up all to set it up and do it again the next day. And by the end of that weekend, I knew I needed to go get my master's so I could do more of this. It was just sublime to be working 12 hours a day in that kind of an environment again. And I knew that I wasn't at that level of technical skill and ability to be able to pull a job just yet. So I needed more of that training. And that's where trying to get into a master's program came in. Well, and it's interesting how, you know, one thing that strikes me about the, you know, printmaking practice is just that there's such a communal aspect of it too so i'm sure you know just being around other printmakers and you know you're obviously like learning techniques but then you're also having these other folks that are kind of in that same category you know like trying to aspire to develop their processes and how they're able to kind of print something even i guess with more perfection or more accuracy again it's just interesting to think about how you know, that experience came about too, you know, just to kind of <laughs> send all these letters out and then something stuck, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was just a funny situation because I mean, I literally was living out of a motel room next to a Wawa <laughs> and I'd wake up in the morning and go get a breakfast sandwich from there and drive to the shop 
And at the end of the day, they gave us lunch every day, which was awesome because they had a kitchen there. And then at the end of the day, I would drive back to that motel and walk to the Wawa to get a sandwich before I fell asleep to do it all again. And it was it was really it was also a really great experience because I saw some stuff I'd never seen before. Like this was the first time I'd ever seen a hydraulic press. Um, so they were they were doing work that looked like silkscreen from the outside, but it had hundreds of colors on a single print. So you knew that just be crazy to try to actually screen print that. So what they were doing was they were using a hydraulic press, which just works on a up and down motion, no running through underneath of a impression cylinder. And we had to ink up these blocks with like an eighth of an inch worth of ink so that they would be so bright and saturate and pristine that when they just went straight down, they could come straight back up with that amount of ink. And I never seen or thought about doing a block that way or even thinking that it was possible. And suddenly I was learning this whole new thing with this crazy intensive. And it was just getting back into that environment. I mean, the craziest part about the whole situation was the fact that I showed up and they literally said to me, we've just discovered Led Zeppelin's Sirius XM. So we'll be listening to that for the whole weekend. <laughs> and yeah, so we spent literally three days straight of 12 hour days listening to Led Zeppelin rolling up wood stamps. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so you were talking about how, you know, this certainly led you to wanted to pursue your MFA after that. Um, so was that a big process in terms of uh, looking around for different programs and, you know, what they offered or different professors that you wanted to work with? How did, how did you come about, you know, deciding to go to Arizona? I did it in the most slapdash way possible. I really didn't have, I had some great teachers at Ringling when it came to being in the classroom with them and learning technique. I only had one who was really good at continuing to advise and give me information afterwards. And she went to Arizona State as an undergrad in the early 80s. But she never, I didn't contact her to ask or anything. I just, I did the most like, yeah, slapdash way of doing it. I went to the US News website, looked up the top 10 MFA and printmaking programs at the time, eliminated the three that were private art schools because I knew I wanted to have some teaching experience from it. And then eliminated Rutgers because I didn't want to go to Jersey. Uh, so it came down to applying to University of Georgia, Tennessee, Texas, Wisconsin, Iowa, uh, Arizona State, and just putting it all out there and seeing what happened. And Arizona came back and said, yeah, we'd love to have you. So I went out there and it worked out to be the best situation possible for me. I've advised many a student not to do what I've done since. But when I showed up to Arizona State, I learned that their program was the you take classes. It's not a grad program where you go in and they hand you your studio and your TA for two things and you meet for seminar once a week and you show every uh, you have a review at the end of the semester. We actually literally still had to take classes right alongside the undergrads. So I was able to go right in my first semester and get into photogravure and then drop back into lithography again and just continue to build on that experience that I had had um, in undergrad and just gain more and more techniques and more and more ideas of how it could all be used. Well, and you described earlier this kind of relationship with abstraction and representation. Was that something that kind of, I'm sure, got you know thrown at you in terms of like, you got to make a decision on this or you got to go this way or that way? Was it a big exploratory kind of like first first couple of years there? Or 
I don't know how long yeah. the program is. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a it's a three year program minimum. It was so much of a kind of just let me try this, let me try that, let me try this. I actually almost did not pass the halfway review the first time. <laughs> My work was all over the place. It was a very shotgun situation where I had I had tried doing like I had taken photographs of dried out tree trunks in kind of abstracted ways to do my photogravure processes because it was realistic, but it was abstracted. And then I got into lithography and I learned the toner wash processes there and I just played completely abstract. And then I went back and I started getting into woodcut and silkscreen. And it, I just, I was thinking a lot more haphazardly about how do I best use this tool or this technique and not, okay, how do I make it fit to a theme or a concept line that I'm exploring right now? So when I got to my 15-hour review, which is the halfway point there, I passed with just barely majority, but everybody telling me that I needed to take an extra semester to be able to have some more time to work out what I wanted to do. And that was the best advice I'd gotten at that point. So so I graduated in December of 2011 um, instead of that May because I wanted that extra time to work through some more ideas before I really had to get into my thesis work. And it was a really good one because that last semester of classes before I got into my thesis work is where I took a digital printmaking class that really brought out the use of laser engravers and CNC routers and inkjet printing to make films and things. And that use of Photoshop as an extra tool to be able to really enhance what printmaking can do and what you can get out of it. And that's that drove the rest of my time at Arizona State was learning that and trying to expand on that. That's super interesting. I'm especially curious, you know, thinking about it relative to timeline, were there a lot of artists that you were looking at or influences that kind of led you kind of conceptualizing your work in a different way that you hadn't before? Like you had mentioned earlier that writing was kind of like a strong suit. I'm just curious because I know that, you know, you're in all these art history courses, you're in seminars, you're talking about Foucault and Walter Benjamin and looking at all sorts of different art. I was looking at a lot of photographers back then. Just the Southwest was a really interesting area for photography. But the real thing that influenced me a lot was how how transformative that region was at the time and still probably is because I haven't been out there in a while but they had cookie cutter home on top of cookie cutter home being built up into that region just because and going up and exploring the Grand Canyon and going up to Sedona and seeing what was happening in those spaces I, I was just I was really heavily influenced by the environment and the growth and the change of that region more than I was anything else because I took photogravure that very first semester um, the class was half printmaking MFAs, half photography MFAs. And I got to know photography MFAs pretty quickly. And I started hanging out and taking more stuff with them just to be able to like build that into my practice. And so I, there was one photography professor, Mark Collette, who was really good friends with the two main printmakers that I worked with, Joe Segura and John Rousseau. And they told me to go meet with Mark and, and introduce myself after that 15 hour review because I kind of saw where I was going and what was working well for me. And so I went and talked with him and he actually advised me to get into his landscape photography class where I started playing around with, instead of actually taking photos, like uh, compositing photos, taking multiple images offline and building them together to create new environments or new spaces. And that's really what started to drive that final thesis work that became my MFA show of This Land is Your Land. Well, it's interesting because you can certainly see there's a lot of photography in that series and, you know, playing around with scales and 
it's interesting to think about these uh, environments and these houses that you're juxtaposing them with. And, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that in depth. What I culminated my MFA with was uh, an exhibition titled This Land is Your Land, which was focused around a body of 16 images where I composited houses into landscapes. So I found images online of landscapes that had no man-made paraphernalia or things or build out and tried to find a house that I felt like fit in it, but at the same time feel a little out of place. Because what I was really thinking about was how since the end of World War II and the explosion after that of the American real estate market and the idea of like the American dream home and everybody being able to own their own home with their white picket fence in the perfect space the exact way they wanted it to. And so I was kind of playing around with that. I mean, I, I worked on three different bodies of work, one where I was putting houses into spaces, one where I was actually taking famous pieces of public art and putting them into spaces. So I did this one piece where I took uh, Klaus Oldenburg's lipstick tanks and like had them driving through a field. <laughs> so just different play on that. But then I also did one that was a whole bunch of different office stuff or city urban based ones. Like I put a, what was the exit from a, French metro station in the middle of the desert. Like mm -hmm. there was this random metro stop in the middle of the desert and like a KFC slash pizza hut on a beach kind of thing. So I was just kind of playing in that way. But then I decided to go in the direction of these houses, thinking about the American dream home and what's been kind of pushed and provoked by the real estate market that kind of put us into that downturn in, downturn in 2008. How everybody was being told that they should be able to own their own home and have that ability, even though financially, they might not actually be stable doing that kind of thing. So to be able to build out on that and to kind of present it better, I used this gallery space. It was the photography gallery. So I had to get permission from the whole department, which meant studio visits with every photography professor, which was actually really nice because they gave me some great feedback on it because the space was divided in two. It was one large gallery that was two separate rooms with a small opening between the two. And it allowed me to put all of those works into a, uh, an environment that started to resemble a real estate office, just trying to build that environment further and to push the idea further. And so I titled the office, like I titled it, This Land is Your Land Properties. I built a website for it for, with a friend from undergrad. I made brochures and catalogs that gave you all these possible, possible ideas of what could be developed through this company. I even went so far as to create a fake portrait um, for the real estate agent, which Underneath of nine layers of compositing is a portrait of Thomas Kincaid. <laughs> so, and, and through that process, I realized how important looking at someone's eyes are because it still looked like Thomas Kincaid until I put a new set of eyes on it. And then it no longer looked like Thomas Kincaid. Hmm. So it was interesting. Like, and, and because I titled it, this land is your land. My other like inside joke that ran throughout the whole thing was all the other like mortgage broker advertisements I put in the catalog or other stuff like that were all off of other Woody Guthrie lyrics. And so it's just as much of that as I could just to be able to make the space feel feel like it was real, but then give you a very obvious notion that it was broken at the same time. Because those images, even though they look like really well put together on my website, were actually printed out at 28 inches tall by 40 inches wide. And so they were heavily pixelated in real life. And so it became this interesting thing where from about five feet away, 10 feet away, they looked realistic. And then as you approached them, because you were engaged with them and wanted to 
like respond to them further, they started to actually break down and you start to realize that there was a very fake nature to the whole, like there was a facade to the whole environment to kind of give you more of that rhetoric of what was happening with the actual market. Yeah. And I, I really like the way that it's all kind of presented, you know, it's not just presented as these straight pieces, you know, and obviously including like office furniture and <laughs> boxes of Kleenex and, you know, little Ikea desks and stuff like that kind of just kind of build on that, that idea of, you know, maybe people coming in and uh, working through that, that process. And certainly I can relate to that relative to my work uh, as well. And obviously the time, very interesting stuff. Um, what, what happened in terms of afterwards? Did you, did you land that tenure job immediately or? Oh, I'm, I'm still looking for that. Tenure <laughs> <job>. <laughs> kind of a, being a little facetious there. I, I know that Again, so many people that I know kind of just, you know, wound up going in all these different directions. So some people wind up landing that job and then somebody winds up getting that adjunct position on the other side of the country. Um, what wound up happening with you after this experience? Uh, so after grad school, I moved back to the D.C. area because my wife had received a job in D.C. while we were out in Arizona. And so I just moved back here. I happened to be able to connect with um, the Corcoran School of Art and Design at the time and start teaching as an adjunct for them in their printmaking area. Mm -hmm. I taught letterpress and silkscreen for them for about two years. And then during that time, I was fortunate enough to meet the area head of printmaking at the University of Maryland, Justin Strom. And he asked me to come out and introduced me to the chair about six months later, the chair called me up to see if I wanted to teach 2D design for them because they had a sabbatical fill-in that was necessary. And lucky enough, I was they liked me enough that once that one semester was over, he turned around and started offering me drawing one classes uh, since the 2D design classes were back with the full-time faculty member. So I've actually been teaching for the University of Maryland as an adjunct for six years now, mostly in drawing and printmaking. Uh, but every once in a while, they asked me to go back and take over a 2D design class where it's needed here and there. Um, and other than that, the Corcoran ended because they shrank the number of classes I had and the commute became too great for it. But since then, I've been able to pick up little bits of teaching at some of the local community colleges to supplement. And it's worked out so far. I'm still striving for that tenure track like everybody <laughs> is, but we're every time the year rolls around and that happens, I go, the realization of how hard it is and how it may not happen is becoming a little bit bigger and bigger for me. Well, and certainly though, it looks like it's allowed you, you know, certainly plenty of time to continue to kind of pursue all your ideas and especially new processes and, and ways of thinking about it, you know, and certainly as we're kind of moving forward, that idea of abstraction and I would imagine, you know, love a color field painting kind of comes up into this uh, series called Other Side? Yeah, a little bit of that. They, it's interesting how that, like, being in the D.C. area, the color school seems to influence everybody. <laughs> it's something that's just part of the nature, at least in my opinion, when it comes to being in the D.C. area. I've had some odd experiences here or there that have kind of revealed over time how work that is a little bit too political or a little bit too social or might be too realistic or be too easily, mainly too easily interpreted in a certain direction, usually, at least in my experience, doesn't do well. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because I, I've had the fortunate experience to be in a number of houses in Georgetown and some of the other more well-off areas of D.C. And those people's collections usually refer to Picasso and Degas and the masters, because the masters and the classics, nobody would be offended by. Mm -hmm. But 
if you have a piece up that's Black Lives Matter based or something else like that, someone might come by your house for a dinner party and be offended by it. And then suddenly you've got so many other problems. So I think, at least in my opinion, from my experiences, things that are a little bit more abstract or a little bit looser in their interpretation seem to do better in the DC region. And that has definitely influenced me a little bit because, I mean, we're all trying to sell our work and we're all trying to make a living off of this. And that started to come out with the Other Side series. The Other Side series began after my scenes from Suburbia series and actually built off of that in a weird way. Because in the scenes from Suburbia drawing series, I was looking at all of the discarded items that I was seeing in my neighborhood, the things that the trash collectors were going to be coming to pick up and how interesting their shapes were and how I could draw something heavily realistic, but still have kind of an abstract nature to it. But then in trying to develop that series further, I started thinking about the fences that were used to kind of divide the private space from the public space and as kind of the the protector from these the detritus that was being left out by different people. And so that's why I started thinking more about the fence and the division of space and that idea of the grass is always greener on the other side, which came into play with that series. And so obviously the other side series is, it's a series of woodcut prints, most of them two color, simple reduction cut. One of them I actually attempted 10 layers with and it worked out beautifully and I've been trying to get back to it, but it's been a time crunch for that. And they're all about that question of both colors are rich, both colors are saturate, both colors are beautiful, but which color is preferred? And how does that dynamic start to play out? Because one person might interpret it this way and the other person might interpret it that way. And then we have that notion of how everyone has their own opinion, their own differences in what they think is beautiful. And so I just, it's a really simple series in its scale and in its style, but I really like the deep discussion it creates from just the simple blending of two colors and how they can be juxtaposed by just a simple white line. And one thing that I really like is this idea of, you know, thinking about other things that you might especially kind of, you know, recognize from the suburbs. So to kind of think about, you know, how some of these um, ideas are, you know, like in the scenes from suburbia, you know, you've got like these depictions of like, you know, lawn bags. And so there's this kind of real interesting, you know, thing to think about hovering between, you know, hyper realism and then, you know, pure abstraction and to kind of see where those things kind of balance out. And it seems like then I would imagine then kind of moving that forward really lends itself to the to the series that came after that. Yeah, that was a big kind of bringing those two together is where kind of the proxemic boundaries came in. For a while doing the other side series, been interested in like, what would it be like from a different perspective? And I've been thinking about like actual fences and like getting into sculpture again. But then I just started thinking about like, how can I play with this in a way that's more easily interpreted, but also a little bit more universally seen. So I thought about just simplifying it down to these flat geometric forms that kind of implied wall and such. And obviously being in the DC region and being around the nation's capital, there's a lot of political talk as well. And so obviously somewhere in the back of my mind, the talk of President Trump's wall and everything was there. And I was trying to think about how to how to make work that kind of counted against it or countered it in a way, but wasn't totally interpreted in that. Because whenever I've gotten into making work that's a little bit more social or a little bit more political, I personally have always preferred work where it's a little bit more subtle as well. 
I don't like the stuff that screams in your face because then you're not going to listen to it. Looking at something that screams like one side versus the other, well, if you're on the right side and somebody else is screaming at you from the left side, you're just not going to listen to them. You're going to stick with who you are. But if you make something that's a little bit more subtle and starts an internal conversation, there could be some build out from that. At least that's how I see it. Um, and that's what I was doing with the the This Land is Your Land project was trying to be a little bit more subtle in my discussion and questioning of the American real estate market. And then when it came to proxemic boundaries, I was really in kind of on a subtle level trying to question the idea of putting up that wall along the southern border because of how much we divide and break the space with these fences and wall forms. I mean, I've actually literally seen sections of it driving in El Paso and other parts of the Southwest when my wife and I lived there. And it was stark and really shocking to be driving along the highway and then have a 30 foot steel barrier suddenly pop up out of nowhere. And so how do I, I was trying to think like, how do I create a very vague, but kind of at the same time, specific piece that talks to that division of space and what it does to the environment to divide our spaces in these ways. And being a printmaker, my brain immediately went to blend rolls to be able to create an abstracted implication of land because I can put five or six colors on an 18 inch wide roller and make sure that the colors are blending in a way that they imply a horizon line and maybe imply some kind of body of water or the sun setting or other things like that based off of the combination, but leave it in such an abstracted, out of focus form that you could think about it as any environment you may have experienced in your life at some point. And then once I had those rolled out, then it was just, okay, well, how, where do I go from here? And at that point, I, I discovered powdered graphite for the first time in my life mm-hmm. and fell in love with it. And I was like, this is amazing. Why did no one ever tell me about this before? I can paint with graphite. So uh, I started taking that and I started taping out spaces and applying it with brushes and just playing and playing and playing until I finally kind of built this geometric thing that showed you what the landscape could be by leaving it slightly translucent, but at the same time blocking it out enough that it felt like an impediment to your enjoyment of this color space. And from there, just kind of kept exploring and playing with it. And at the same time, did a smaller series, kind of quick sketch ideas that I called the PS samples or personal space samples, which are just little anywhere from four inches by six inches to eight inches by 10 or even four by 24 inches using just flat charcoal silhouettes of fence forms to divide that little bit of space more on the level of what we see from our own backyards versus what we see dividing larger territories. Well, and there's like a really nice difference between the two bodies. And it's fun because there's like a a color that almost reminds me of like Rothko color fields or, you know, these barriers that remind me of like tilted arc and make me think about like the division of space. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, like a monolith type form from 2001. Yeah, yeah. But they're, they're they're kind of put in these spaces too, where, like again, it's almost like a dreamlike space or 
you know, something that kind of makes you feel like you're, I don't know, almost discovering like a new horizon. I mean, it looks maybe because of that color is so like kind of one that you might associate with like a, a time of day or, you know, a landscape. And then to kind of think about it in relationship to that barrier. I don't know. It's just like it, it provides like this really interesting setup for exploring that content. But like you said, again, it's not super heavy in terms of. Uh, like a direct statement that's going to be about something that's overtly political. It kind of like leaves it open a little bit for somebody that might look at them to kind of to think about them, you know, and even just admire them as a, as a formal, formal thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had a lot of people who have just come to me and talked to me about the color and the beauty of the color and the, the value of the forms and things like that. And some people will bring into the political nature some of it. Some people won't. And that's why I kind of leave it that way. It's like some people think about that and want to have that conversation and other people don't. And that's their choice. I'm not trying to force an opinion on anyone with my work. I'm just trying to give people new imagery and new ways of looking at things to try to build the conversation further. Because I, I mean, I've always had my political opinions. I've always had my side that I felt like I've been on. But I've never felt that it's my job to force it on someone else. It's just my job to have that conversation and to just see if I can understand them, if they can understand me and where things can go from there. And between the two, there's kind of like this nice kind of industrial aesthetic for the boundaries series. And then for the personal spray samples, you're turning the clock back almost to kind of look at like ideas of it from the past almost. Or like when I'm driving through the suburbs, like I've certainly looked at fences just because you know, it'll suddenly, you know, lurch to someone else's lawn or yard. And then it totally changes in terms of like a slight design, you know, in terms of seeing a fence like that. But they both kind of explore those ideas of, of separating different boundaries or, you know, territories or, you know, from the personal space to something that might be more, I don't know, like almost like this, like I said, like a dreamlike world. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's been a, I mean, Walking around my town again, being an adult now versus being a kid has been a big influence on like me because it's really funny to see. I, I live in a community that was one of the first housing cooperatives in the country. And so it was one of the first HOAs at the same time because it set up its like requirements of this is how your yard has to be. This is how your fences have to be. And the fences always around here are all the green chain fences because they want that you to be able to divide your space if you have a dog or whatever reason you want it. But at the same time, they don't want the houses to feel separated. They want the community to still feel open. And I've gone into other places or other communities, suburbs in the DC area and such, and you'll see those fences that are eight feet tall that are slat for slat, so you can't see inside at all. And that's that it feels so isolationist to me to have that kind of setup and to be so far away from everything that it's it's just weird and uncomfortable. And that's part of why I wanted to play with the, the personal space samples as well was like all those different styles of fences and what they might imply and how they each kind of block it out in different ways. Um, but it's, I mean, it's also speaking to that idea of like the ideal fence that everybody thinks of as that perfect one of the white picket and what that implies versus like what it implies when you just see chain link over something mm -hmm. and the implication of like the guarded fence for whether it's a compound or a jail or just a rough neighborhood, how those two different styles of fence can have such different implications for where you are and who you're dealing with and the environment and how you have to feel about being in that place. Well, and there's something nice too about the, um, the drawn aspect of it, I'm assuming that's, that's the charcoal that's over the top of the, the various fences over the, yeah, 
rolled print. Again, there's something really kind of nice about that aesthetic because while, you know, they're pretty close to being exact, there's still like this uh, sense of the hand that you can kind of see. Yeah, all the little mistakes. <laughs> well, I mean, but there there's something that's nice because it, it kind of reminds me of that idea of, you know, having this pixelated image that looks really tight from far away. Mm-hmm. And then you get up close to it and you realize there's this something a little bit wobbly about it, you know, which I think, again, kind of heightens that that idea that you want, you know, which is to pose that question to a viewer or maybe kind of get them to, to react or think about it. Yeah, it, it's funny because it, thinking back uh, when I started my grad school work and I was so heavily based in Photoshop, um, I had a friend from undergrad who I was reaching out to for help and, and advice on different things. And he was joking with me. He was messing with me because when we were in undergrad, he was an illustrator who did a lot of Photoshop painting for all of his classes. And every time I'd see him doing that, I'm like, why don't you just get the actual paint and actually paint it? And he's like, because there's no command Z. <laughs> and so, so I was always doing everything by hand because I really felt that need for that attention to craft and such. And then suddenly my whole thesis drives me in this way of going hardcore digital and printing everything inkjet and doing everything computer. And he just looks at me and goes, why aren't you doing it all by hand? And I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. There are tools for this and there are tools for that. It just, it's all what's the idea and how you're trying to get it across. And I mean, like I spoke to earlier about my use of printmaking is based off of what is the technique going to give me? Because the whole other side series is woodcuts because I can grain the wood to give it a texture that makes it look almost like grass or hay or other textures that you see in nature and in the environment. But I could just as easily do those color separations and that little bit of white line work in screen printing and get a print done in a week, but it wouldn't have that texture and it wouldn't have that subtle quality that kind of implies the narrative in one direction versus another. And I think for me, like, that's where it's like, I I feel the importance in not in like using a certain process all the time because I need to be well known for lithography or I need to be well known for drawing or I need to be well known for sculpture. It's like, for me, the importance is what's going, what's the best technique, what's the best tool, what's the best material to enhance the idea and really help derive it home to the viewer. One thing that we haven't really kind of discussed is is some of the process involved in terms of like how you maybe start a new body of work. Is that something that's mostly derived from like experience and kind of observation or is it something that is like, you know, writing down ideas when they come to you or how how do you kind of work through to to start something new or to know where you want to go with something? For me, it's just a lot of experimentation and play. Um, but with actual pieces as opposed to like sketching it. Well, I mean, I'll sketch, but like, like the other side series came from sketching. There's a lot of sketching of a lot of like geometric ways of thinking about dividing space with fences. And then eventually I got onto this idea of like, what if I drew it from this isolated perspective, the isometric perspective that implies it in a certain direction. And then I could do it by just carving out this simple white line to be able to imply that division of space. But that came from lots of sketches and lots of drawing in different books. Like I had a whole sketchbook of gridded paper that at this point is almost three quarters full of just 
little six square by nine square versions of those, like hundreds of them at this point. But then other times, like with the scenes from Suburbia series, I was photographing all this stuff I saw in my neighborhood thinking in reference to, I'm going to use it to make digital composites for a new series of prints, whether they be from laser engraving or whether they be through inkjet, like that was my intention. But then I saw this one leaf bag that I photographed and I thought about, I'm teaching a lot of drawing classes. It's been a while since I really drew. I need to get back into that. And just I just got sucked into the series. I just got sucked into this idea of going through and trying to create these super representational images of these forms that seemed very abstract to me at the same time. And it, it found that comfort zone of I'm creating work that on one level feels abstract, but on the other level feels realistic. And that's just what came from there. I mean, proxemic boundaries built off of the experimentation that came from the other side series. It also was slightly influenced by the fact that I had a kid mm -hmm. and I had a lot less time. So I started thinking like, how can I, continue thinking about the division of space, but I can have 20 minutes of drawing instead of five hours of printing. Right, right. And so that influenced that changeover a little bit. But then the personal space samples was me just screwing around. Like, okay, I've got this little four inch by eight inch sheet from all this mono printing. What can I do on it? And I had a 45 degree angle next to me. And so I set it up and I drew the grid and then I started drawing the lines over top to create the chain link. And suddenly I went, okay, well, let me see if I can make a picket. And let me see if I can think of this fence or that fence. And just playing and experimenting as kind of these almost quick sketch ideas to keep my brain thinking in that way. And right now I'm trying to figure out how to merge some of the ideas of the scenes from Suburbia series with the Proxemic Boundary series through collage. And so I, I did this small run of litho prints two years ago as part of a residency, which were just more leaf bag forms, but drawn a little bit rougher, not as realistic, but more like their memories of those actual bags that I saw. And I've been printing different textures and different things in the shop, all to just bring all these elements in and see how I might be able to build a new conversation by maybe the wall is there with some more specific environmental implications behind it but then maybe the leaf bag stands in for some kind of figurative element so it's something that you can read in a certain way but it doesn't specifically imply it because it's a leaf bag it's not an actual person that's doing that kind of thing and so that's just me taking all of these cut up elements and placing them out and moving them around and letting them be for a few days and then coming back and seeing if i still like where they are or whether i want to adjust a color here or add some pastel in there. So it's it's kind of all over the place, but most of the time it's just getting in and making some stuff and seeing what comes of it. Because that's for me the best way to get my brain going is to experiment and see what's going to happen with a different process that I might have seen a friend post on Instagram or something. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it seems like a interesting place to be relative to where your work is at right now because there's all these different kind of ways that you can uh, recombine or, you know, search for new ideas, especially through collage. That seems super interesting. Yeah, it's a cool new trend that I've been seeing with a lot of printmakers is like suddenly there's this whole vein of why am I trying to register eight layers 
onto the same sheet of paper. Why don't I just print a few different things and pull them together to make a piece out of it? And I, I started doing it without realizing that another local friend of mine was doing it. And then a, another artist that I recently found out was doing the same kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, there, there's something about this. There's something starting to happen amongst artists who use printmaking to go, why are we so dead set on needing to register 25 prints to look the exact same way? Why not use screen printing to build these elements, woodcut to build that, and then bring them together onto a piece of map board to see what they can do in that way. Well, and so that might be a kind of an interesting thing to, I guess, diverge from your own work and maybe talk a little bit too about some of these shows that you have uh, put together. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that relationship to your, to your studio practice as well, being a curator. Yeah, that's been a big influence on my studio practice for the past few years. I curated my first show called Suburban back in fall of 2017. It happened to be a gallery at the University of Maryland. It was not one of those, well, I'm already here, so they gave it to me. I actually had to apply along with a whole bunch of other people, but I happened to get picked. And so I brought together the work of six artists from around the country who all made work in different ways that kind of played off of our relationship with suburban and urban spaces through humor and satire. And that was kind of my first foray into it. And it, I really enjoyed it because it made me really think a little bit further about the relationship between processes and what things implied based off of how they were used. Like my, my favorite work to kind of pick out of that first show was this work by an artist named Yunmi Nam, who's a professor at University of Kansas because she's a printmaker from RISD, but she's gotten really into ceramics in the past few years. And she's been making, she made these beautiful pieces where she made porcelain casts of um, like to-go containers for food from Chinese restaurants or other kinds of restaurants. And then she used photolithography to print the stereotypical thank you imagery you see on the to-go bags mm-hmm. um, onto gompi paper, which is a super thin, fine Japanese paper, and actually folded it up and cut it up and glued it into the bags. So these they were sculptures of these processes that could be repeated, but she was working with them in a way that was going to make these beautiful, unique forms. And they were just so fantastic to see. And every student who walked up to him was like, what is going on here? Like, what is happening? And suddenly it started creating this bigger conversation for all these students because now they were thinking outside the box of how we could combine all these different forms. And so because that one was so nice, I decided to keep kind of going with it. And in spring of 2018, I curated a show that involved myself and five other artists who all happen to be printmakers in their background but weren't specifically making prints at this point to create a show called Composite at a gallery in Kent, Ohio. And so both of those just really just sparked something in my brain that made me start thinking outside the box, start thinking about other people's work and how I could approach my own work differently. So most recently, I just opened an exhibition at the American University Museum in D.C. in a space called the Alper Initiative Gallery, which is a gallery that is dedicated to only showing work by contemporary artists in the D.C. region um, who live within 50 miles of D.C. So it ranges from Baltimore down to Fredericksburg, Virginia. And so I was given the task of putting together a show specifically focused on artists who use printmaking 
as part of their processes. And I, I, I very clearly say artists who use printmaking as part of their processes because there's a certain implication that comes with just calling somebody a printmaker. And I understand where that's a good thing, but I also like the idea that I'm starting to push for this new term of printmaking implies a certain nature to galleries, but printmaking processes can be used to make really beautiful pieces of art too. So they shouldn't have that kind of stigma from that title put on them. And so it's an exhibition of 38 works by 19 artists um, who all live within 50 miles of DC that shows a nice representation of traditional printmaking works by having, or what would be considered traditional, by having some woodcuts that are framed, some uh, screen prints, lithographs, etchings, all framed in the usual way that people expect prints to be shown. But at the same time, there's also a lot of three-dimensional work and installation work utilizing printmaking. One of what I think is one of the coolest examples in the show of that is a piece by an artist named Amelia Hankin, who took glassine, which is traditionally just a protective material for art, and actually screen printed on it, and then folded them up into fortune tellers, and then built this installation out of the fortune tellers that started to talk about memory and the idea of predictions and childhood wishes and different things like that. And it was just really lovely way of kind of breaking the mold a little bit more. And at the same time, there was another piece that I chose by a woman named Maggie Gorley, who actually used screen printing to block out mirrors so she could shape the reflection onto the wall. And I just thought that was genius to suddenly go, why am I trying to use this process to make a traditional image? I can use this process to literally print on mirror so that the light will reflect and show the image that I want it to show on the wall and give it this beautiful ethereal nature to it. And so it was just, I got this wonderful representation of all of this work to be shown. And that opened up just about a week and a half ago on June 15th at American University. And then um, this coming Friday the 28th, I have another showing of the Suburban Show, but now with new art from the same six artists at the Lawrence Arts Center in Lawrence, Kansas, called Suburban Sprawl, because it's a bit of an expansion of that first idea. Taking work that these same six artists have created over the past two years since we last showed and starting to create a new conversation uh, about suburban and urban spaces. Very cool. You know, again, it's always interesting to think about how some of these other, but, you know, like a, another practice, I guess, if you will, you know, kind of influence not only your own work, but then, you know, like what you, what you wind up seeing and, you know, certainly keeps adding to that conversation and, and allows you to kind of really explore in depth, uh, you know, things that you're interested in and certainly through group shows, especially. Yeah. I mean, especially with this, the show at American, it's called, um, I titled it Crossing Boundaries and Breaking Borders because the work was not only just crossing the physical boundaries of DC to expand out to the larger region and have a better communication between that, but it was also kind of crossing political boundaries, diversity boundaries, um, gender boundaries through who was being represented because these a lot of the artists may never have gotten into American in other ways. So to be able to show in the American University Museum in this way gave a grip bigger voice to the local artists, but also the breaking borders because of the amount of work that was pushing and playing with these ideas of what is the traditional border space of a print. I mean, 
so often it was emphasized to me in my undergrad years about, oh, you have the one inch by one inch by one inch by two inch border around your print. Mm -hmm. So it has that weight and that gravity to it by having an extra little bit of paper on the bottom. And for years I pushed that same idea and then through curatorial stuff, through seeing other work, through meeting and seeing what's happening in the larger print community through the conferences and such, like that idea that we have to have a border and we have to have it in a frame just completely shattered. And there's some fantastic work being created by artists out there that are really pushing this idea of how print, because we can print a hundred of the same thing, it's very, like very quickly, it's very easy to then take that and build it into something three-dimensional or installational because we have so many now and it's so easy to reproduce. And that's become such a great, great new conversation in printmaking that I really wanted to have that be a large part of the conversation when it came to this exhibition. And just, again, remind us the dates in that for both those exhibitions, the one that's coming up and then the one that's currently on view at American University. So the Crossing Boundaries and Breaking Borders DMV Printmaking at American University opened on June 15th, and it'll be open until August 11th. And uh, Suburban Sprawl, which opens this Friday, June 28th, at uh, Lawrence Arts Center, will be open until August 3rd. Awesome, awesome. And then it's just a matter of starting that process all over again, huh? Yeah, I've already got two or three other curatorial ideas in my brain. I've already had one studio visit this summer. I'm going to have another one with another local artist because it's just one of those things that like when I can't be in the studio working, if I've got an evening to myself on the couch, that's where my brain starts to go is, okay, looking at Instagram, looking at following up with old friends and seeing what they're making now and how could I build those together and what connections can I make so that we can have a larger conversation about what's happening in art? Absolutely. Absolutely. And remind everybody too, where's the best place to find your work and, and to stay up to date with uh, current goings on? Uh, so my website is www.matthewtmclaughlin.com and you spell my last name M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N. And I also have do a lot of posting on Instagram at Matthew T. McLaughlin as the username as well. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, I hope everybody goes and make sure to follow you on Instagram and, and check out your site. Again, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about your work and your curatorial projects. And it's super exciting stuff. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks once again to Matthew for joining me. Be sure and check out his website, MatthewTMcLaughlin.com and follow him on Instagram at the same name. I'd also like to make sure you check out his exhibitions that he's recently curated, Crossing Boundaries and Breaking Borders, which is up at American University Museum from now until August 11th, and Suburban Sprawl, which opens at the Lawrence Art Center in Lawrence, Kansas, and runs June 28th through August 3rd. So be sure and check those out if you can. Of course, I hope I haven't offended any mezzotint printmakers out there, so it was all in jest. But you can, of course, share comments through our social media platform, so check it out at Studio Break on Facebook. Be sure and like us there. You can also find us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. Always great hearing comments from listeners, so be sure and say hello. 
Once again, if you're checking out Studio Break for the first time, I do want to encourage you to visit studiobreak.com. We have a bunch of different interviews up there that you can listen to, so be sure and peruse. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork as well as links to their websites. You can listen right there in the default player or click that iTunes hyperlink. Subscribe to the podcast there and help spread the word. Again, if you like this podcast, we always appreciate it, and you earn some free karma points, so thanks so much for getting the word out. Let me thank Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his artwork at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, you can visit DavidLinaway.com. And I guess before I get out of here, I should announce that I have a two-person exhibition opening up at Heartbreaker in Peoria with Shona McDonald. The show is entitled Peripheries, and we're going to be sharing some of our work. So if you're in the area of Peoria, Illinois, it's July 12th at 7 p.m., so be sure and check out the work at the opening. Once again, Peripheries opens me and Shona McDonald at Heartbreaker in Peoria, Illinois, July 12th. With that out of the way, I am so excited to be back. Hope that you enjoyed today's episode. There'll be plenty more coming. We'll talk to you real soon.